Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And I believe that now that as lawyers, we need to use our license to practice law to do do justice, to right wrongs. So when we see something that we know is wrong, stand up, do something, use your law license to do good. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited for today's episode. We have a, we have a fellow podcaster on. I, I, I agree. I was just going to say, I was thinking about saying, I'll see you in court, Yvonne. Uh, <laughs> that's just a little teaser to uh, who our guest is and, and the podcast uh, that she's working on. But uh, I want to go ahead and welcome uh, Robin Fraser-Clark, a fantastic trial lawyer up in uh, Atlanta and the uh, one of the two podcast hosts of See You in Court, done by the Civil Justice Foundation. How are you doing, Robin? I'm doing great. Thanks, Steve and Yvonne. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be on your show. No, I'm a big fan. <laughs> well, we we are, we're just saying before that we've uh, started listening to your podcast, and I'll say it again: see you in court. Uh, that you go, you do along with Lester Tate, uh, another fantastic trial lawyer uh, up in North Georgia, and um, and uh, it's just a, a great podcast. Uh, you know, uh, hits all kinds of relevant issues, especially for lawyers, uh, obviously. But um, but it's a uh, great job. Well, thanks. Um, I want to give. Uh, you, Steve, and Yvonne, credit for helping me and inspiring me. I, I'd wanted to do a podcast of my own. I looked in my little notebook that I keep. Uh, the first time I mentioned it was 2017. Right. And uh, so it only took me three years to make it happen. But really, what, see, listening to your podcast really inspired me. And, um, and, and y'all have both been very helpful to me and um, given me a lot of tips And I appreciate that very much. So thank you for the inspiration. Um, And uh, folks, you can get see you in court anywhere where you can get a podcast. Um, And we have the same great producer you do, Raz Misher. And uh, so we're we're we we got a long way to go to get. I don't know how many downloads y'all. Over (laughs) fifty thousand. Good Lord, fifty thousand downloads for you. So we got a long way to go. But thank you again for all the help that you've given us in getting started. Oh my gosh, of course. It's great. I mean, it's what's great about it is there's a lot of um, different perspectives on the episodes that y'all have recorded around the civil justice system. So where we're always talking to, to trial lawyers and almost always people who represented plaintiffs in the cases, there's a lot of different perspectives on the podcast. And it, it really is like a like CLE programming that you can just bring with you anywhere. So it's yeah. it's great. People should definitely check it out. And and thank you for saying we inspire you instead of, you know, I saw Steve and Yvonne did it. So anybody could do it. (laughs) If if these idiots can do it. (laughs) Definitely inspirational. Well, um, well, Robin, let me uh, talk a little bit about your background. So everybody knows who we're uh, who we're talking to. Uh, Of course, anybody in Georgia and uh, especially the Atlanta area knows who Robin Fraser Clark is. She's, as I said, a fantastic trial lawyer with. uh, tremendous results, but um, not only uh, was she the president of the state bar of Georgia, I think the uh, second woman uh, ever to be the, the president of the state bar of Georgia, she was the president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, the president of the Lawyers Club of Atlanta, 
And uh, when you were uh, the president of the State Bar, you started a great uh, program, a suicide prevention campaign program called How to Save a Life. And that's just so important. Um, also a member of the International Society of Barristers, uh, a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, uh, the Georgia Association for Women Lawyers, and the obviously the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, Foundation and um, been named one of the top 50 women lawyers in Georgia and is a super lawyer every year. Um, and I happen to know, uh, Robin, you have uh, not only a tremendous husband, um, but uh, two, uh, two fantastic kids because uh, your son is a very talented artist. Uh, and I, in fact, I would love to buy some of his art because I, I see some of the stuff he does and it's really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and in your daughter, I think is uh, she's a, a budding lawyer, right? She's in right. law school at UGA? Second year at UGA. So nice. we're, we're very lucky and and. Yes, let me just say, my I have the most wonderful spouse, and behind every great trial lawyer is a great spouse. Because <laughs> you can't do it by yourself. There's just that is, you, you, you guys know. That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, and, and, and I should tell, tell everybody, I didn't even say this. Uh, um, Robin is the partner of Robin Fraser Clark PC, located in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can look her up on her website which is georgiatriallawyers.net or gatriallawyers.net. And she also writes the atlantainjurylawyerblog.com. Um, so you can look her up on both of those and, and find uh, and, and find information about Robin. So uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, we have a very interesting case to, to um, uh, talk about. And I, I was uh, kidding you before. And, I, and one of the very first things I wrote down uh, uh, when I was reading about this case was complex. Um, so it's, this is one of those cases that, uh, you know, has a lot of facts in it, a lot of people in it. And then, and then our job as trial lawyers and, and what you uh, did in this case is to simplify that down to uh, themes that everybody can understand, especially when you're talking about medicine. It's, um, I should say the name of the case is, uh, Marshall Fox on behalf of, uh, Jane Fox, who uh, passed away. Uh, versus the Emory Clinic Incorporated and Emory Healthcare Inc. Um, and it was a medical malpractice uh, involving the unfortunate death of Jane Fox. Um, and this and, and I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, Steve, yeah. but I just want to say, especially, you know, we've talked about a lot of cases on this show and a lot of medical malpractice cases, but Robin really sent us a lot of material on this case that made me, I guess, just feel like I had more of a picture of it than we sometimes do. Um, and it's just a really, really moving case. Um, yeah. And I don't, I hate to interrupt you, but I felt like I was more immersed in this case, maybe because we had more video and things like that. But yeah, a lot of demonstratives and it was, uh, which was uh, very helpful. And, um, you know, and, and uh, that's definitely something I want to talk about as far as your trial strategy is, is putting together these demonstratives because those are, you know, so helpful uh, for really bringing the points home to the, uh, to the jury. Um, but let me let me just give a quick overview of the facts. And Robin, I um, I'm going to do this the best I can. But where sure. I screw up, uh, please feel free to correct me. <laughs> um, but so Jane uh, Fox was 74 years old, and she had a spot on her lung, a nodule in her lung, and so she went into Emory uh, in order to have a biopsy of that nodule. And she was doing a VAT with re wedge resection. It was a video assisted thoracic surgery where they were going to do a biopsy on this nodule um, on her lung. And um, 
she's uh, only weighed 97 pounds. So a very small woman. And that was a, a key part of the case. Um, and so, uh, when they were doing the surgery, uh, and going to intubate her, they used what's called a, a double lumen endotracheal tube. Uh, and I, I, I saw a, a really good, um, demonstrative of, of what it does, but essentially it's, it's, uh, one uh, tube kind of goes down further than the other tube. Yeah, uh, but I, I brought one oh, to nice, show you. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, don't know if I'll ever need that again. Hopefully. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and, and those are thicker than a single uh, lumen uh, uh, endotracheal tube. And uh, so when they tried to intubate uh, uh, Miss Fox, uh, they had some resistance and I, from what I could tell, and this was a little bit confusing to me, Robin, but it sounded like they did intubate her with that, but then maybe decided to then switch to a single lumen uh, endotracheal tube. Is that right? It, it would depend on who you ask okay. uh, and when you ask that person. But the anesthesiology assistant who who intubated her says that he attempted to pass this through her vocal cords, but felt resistance before it got to the vocal cord. So he pulled it out and then did intubate her with the smaller single lumen tube. Okay. Um, but that was in, that was in an, an issue in the case right. because okay. she did have damaged vocal cords. So the issue was how could he possibly have damaged them if he had not actually passed this through the vocal cords? Right. Okay. Okay. That may, that helps a lot. Uh, so, and that was August 13th of 2014. Um, and so she, they, they do this in it. Um, it sounds like they don't actually find the injury to the vocal cords until more than a week later, but she starts showing signs. And, and, uh, and I guess the important part of this for our listeners is, is if you injure the vocal cords, uh, especially, um, I wrote it down, if they become bowed or have a glottal gap, I think right. it is, uh, where basically they're held open, uh, you have no protection uh, for your lungs. And so it allows uh, aspirate, uh, you know, stuff to start getting down into your lungs, which can lead to pneumonia. Uh, and, um, and especially in an, an elderly patient, uh, like a 74-year-old, um, would be very dangerous. And within uh, about two days, she starts showing signs of, um, of pneumonia with a, both a fever, confusion, and an elevated white blood cell count. Um, and then she starts having difficulty talking, very difficult uh, swallowing. And, um, and then she uh, is seen by uh, an ENT resident, I think. Uh, and, um, and he basically notes that she does have an injury. I think she failed a swallowing test and had an, uh, an abnormal uh, and this is where my pronunciation is going to come in. Nasopharyngoscopy. You got it. Nasopharyngoscopy. Right. <laughs> you got it. There we go. <laughs> um, and, and and so he notices that uh, that there's an, you know this injury to her uh, vocal cords, um, but basically from what I can tell, it looks like he did nothing about it. Um, and and then I think what what really uh, must have upset the jury what, that we'll talk about is that the um, attending physician who was sort of overseeing this resident, um, never saw, um, Miss Fox, never visited her. And, and then actually just shockingly signed the consult notes, uh, I think like two weeks after her death or something like that. And, and she, she took a, a, about a month to, to pass away. Um, yes. so I, I, I've sort of 
gone through a bunch of facts, but be, but if, if I understand correctly, I think that, you know, the, the case was is that when they did this uh, intubation, they injured her vocal cords, didn't catch the signs of those. And, and even when an ENT notices the signs of that, failed to really do anything about it. She develops pneumonia uh, and basically um, dwindles um, for uh, over a month. Um, because she, yeah, she finally passes on September 25th. And in what I could tell, just a very uh, painful, uh, slow process of death, which is uh, uh, just so sad. And, um, and the, the case resulted in a uh, $2,350,000 verdict on behalf of, uh, uh, or for the, the death of Miss Fox in uh, DeKalb County, Georgia, um, which is uh, one, one of the Atlanta counties. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's the basics of the, of the facts. That's uh, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's right. And to note in DeKalb County, where the largest employer of citizens and residents of DeKalb County is the defendant, Emory right. University Hospital. Right. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, so. I, I sort of went through a lot of information and I could tell from what you you had here, you had a lot of information. And then there was a lot of different doctors or assistants. You, as far as what the jury had to decide at the end, they had to decide whether there was negligence of the anesthesiologist, of the um, assistant anesthesia or the anesthesia assistant, uh, and then negligence of the resident, um, you know, for not reporting to uh, his attending uh, and then, and then negligence of um, uh, Dr. Rajan, the uh, the attending ENT, um, and and then there was the added point of whether or not uh, the resident, I think, was um, was an agent of uh, Emory or of Emory Clinic. Um, so a lot of different things to work through there. So, I mean, I guess the the first question I just wanted to ask you is when you when you approach a case like that that has a lot of facts in it and, and, you know, a lot of medicine, how do you start approaching that to, you know, really try to simplify it down and boil it down for the jury? It's, as you know, it, it, it is, um, a, it's, it's a difficult task and one that you've got to be really up for and decide, am I, when you're taking a case like this, you have to ask yourself, am I going to be willing to devote the next five years of my time, uh, and, and to this case, because because it's going to be a zero offer case. There'd been no offer, as most med mal cases are. You go to trial because they haven't offered you a penny. So you have to project. Okay, I, I think this will last about five years. Uh, can I win it? Am I willing to put five years of my time and my money into it? Um, and then if you know, and so much goes into that decision. Right. Um, but you read the medical records. I always have a nurse consultant. And we hire experts and I, I really heavily have to rely on my medical experts because I don't know the medicine, at least not when I first decide to take the case. So I'm really relying on my expert help. Um, and then, you know, there's other decisions that have to be made and then you decide to go for it. And then it's roll up the sleeves. Right. <laughs> get cracking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I'm, I'm really glad that you picked this case to talk about, Robin, was that, um, as those of us that practice um, in the area of medical negligence cases know, 
very rarely do you get a case in where somebody's super healthy and then something, you know, just goes terribly wrong and it's very clear. Usually you've, when the case comes in, you've got somebody with a complicated background. That's probably medical background. That's probably why they're in the hospital in the first place. Um, And so you're going to have some issues, medical issues to sort out. And one of the things that really struck me about this case was I think always Unfortunately, because the standard of care is the same, but unfortunately, when you have an older plaintiff or an older patient, um, that things can get really complicated. And as I'm sure we'll touch on later, it can also impact damages. So I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, when you're presented with a case where you've got somebody who's a bit older, um, who has what, of course, the defendants are going to make look, look like a very terrible, very serious medical history and is in poor health. Right. Um, how you sort of work with those issues and identify those issues from the beginning? Yeah. Well, in, in this case with Miss Mrs. Fox, um, she was in there to have this VATS, this video-assisted thor- thoracotomy, um, which is actually a very painful procedure in and of itself. Um, but... It was to, to biopsy a spot on her lung that had been there for years. So my first question before I take this case is, well, was she going to die anyway? Was she, did she have cancer? Was it so far gone? What was her life expectancy? So that, that was a big concern. So we had to investigate that. Um, we, just, we ended up concluding, and, and even the Emory doctors ultimately agreed, it was cancerous. Um, but... It did not cause her death, and uh, she could have lived with that spot on her lung probably the rest of her life and never have it biopsy. And um, and that's critical, as you can imagine, because um, one of the questions, probably the number one question my focus group had was, what was her cause of death? So we really emphasized that. Um, but I was able to get one of the defense experts even to admit she didn't die of that. She could have gone just her rest of her natural life without having the surgery. Um, and he even, he even said, we bury people with cancer all the time, meaning yeah. she could have been died of something else, some other natural cause with this cancer. So that was important to make sure this was should have been nothing for her. This should have just been a little biopsy and move on with her life. One of the issues with Emory as a teaching hospital is did they schedule this so they would have a teaching procedure? Mm. Uh, because vats are hard to come by. Um, and we raised that that issue. Now, we had no real evidence of that, but it sure makes you wonder, had right. she been in a non-teaching hospital, would they have even risked it? Because wow. it was so tiny and hadn't, and hadn't uh, progressed. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. 
Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I notice as the defense always does in cases like this, and as Yvonne was just saying, they always point out, you know, the the uh, medical history, especially if there's a, a lot of complicating factors. And, and I, you know, I noticed that they pointed out that she was a former smoker, uh, co- chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and then had had breast cancer uh, as well. So w- what, I mean, what was their explanation? And I guess, was that part of your negligence claim that they shouldn't have done this in the first place? Or No, no, I didn't have any expert testimony that that fell below the standard care to, to go forward with the procedure. Um, but we discussed it. Uh, and their position was it was cancer. You know, they did a pathology report on it and it was cancer. So, hey, look at us. We removed cancer from her. Right. Um, so they can prove they were right to go forward with the procedure. Um, but, but it goes into, like Yvonne was saying at 74 years old, what was her life expectancy? Can they hang their hat on some other cause of death than aspiration pneumonia? Um, and I think I was able to prove no cause of death was aspiration pneumonia. Right. Um, but one of their big defenses talking about her being 74, which, you know, they kept calling her elderly personally. I don't, (laughs) I guess. Technically, 74 year old is elderly, but as I get closer and closer to right. that, I don't yeah. think of it <laughs> as elderly. Think about. <laughs> um, but they use the, the catchphrase old and frail, old and frail, constantly. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish I, we could play a drinking game with how often they use old and frail. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I gave you some of those uh, voicemail messages to show what she was doing, how her voice sounded. It didn't sound old and frail. She sounded with it. And then I had several of her best friends come and testify that they went out shopping. She got her hair done. They enjoyed lunch together. They did all these things, go to festivals together, walking around Noonan. She went to the Noonan Festival with her best friend, Donna Noble, uh, and had just done that right before this procedure. Um, So through her voicemails, uh, and witness testimony, I was able to, I believe, paint a picture of a woman who's very vibrant, yeah. uh, not old and frail. She might be tiny. She was tiny, but she wasn't old and frail. She was active and enjoying life. Right. And I do want to touch on the voicemails were so great. They were so moving. You know, there were voicemails that she left for 
her son, that they reminded me of the kind of voicemails that I would get from, from my grandma or my parents. And what I really liked about those and was glad that you sent them was that I think a lot of times for the damages part of the case, we just, we think of pictures, we think Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. boards to make, and we think about asking for pictures. And I don't know if it's ever occurred to me to ask for or, or videos, but I don't think it's ever occurred to me to be like, you know, do you have any voicemails voicemail saved on your phone? Because there's something specially moving about it. Well, a couple of things made us do that, made us even think about it. And that is, okay, we have a defense that she's old and frail, about to die any moment kind of situation. How do we, how do we show a jury that's just not right? Uh, how, and then added to her voice, they were saying that she aspirated well before this procedure. She was aspirating when she came into Emory. Uh, this surgery didn't cause her any additional harm. You know, uh, how do we, so I'm talking with Marshall, how, Marshall, how do we show her what her voice sounded like? He said, well, I saved her voicemails. I said, let's, let's fire those up. And we listened to right. them. So not only does it show her voice is strong, but mentally, Those voicemails are about, hey, my procedure is on this date. I've got a ride. I've already got my friend Elaine taking me to the hospital. I just need you to pick me up. She was scheduling things. So it shows her cognition was perfectly fine Mm -hmm. and her voice was perfectly fine. Then when we had her goodbye videos, which talk about moving, uh, not a dry eye in the the courtroom except on the defense side. Um, When we showed the goodbye videos taken uh, in her bed as she lay dying, where she's suffocating because she's got fluid in her lungs, cannot get enough oxygen. So she's panting, suffocating. And yet she still knows who she wants to say goodbye to. Marshall's just standing there filming it. Um, But you hear the raspiness of her voice, panting, suffocating, suffering. Talking about showing pain and suffering. She's suffering every minute. And yet she's clear on who she wants to say goodbye to. So, it, was, it made it difficult for them to say she was old and frail. Uh, she only got old and frail after she stayed right. in their hospital for a month suffocating. Right, right. And it kind of begs the question, if the, if, if the defense is that she's old and frail, then why are you doing the surgery in the first place? Yeah, they, I mean, they, 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 they had a hard time with that. They, it's hard to come up with a defense like that. It's a double-edged sword. Right. Right. So I, I want to go back to a second for the um, what you were saying uh, about the way she was intubated and whether or not it it, uh, um, it injured the vocal cords. Um, so so I, I think I understand now that they were claiming she was already aspirating by the time she came in. Did, were they making the claim that the uh, anesthesia assistant never touched the vocal cords? Right. And it, they and took so, that position. So how, how did the vocal cords get injured? What was their explanation? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know that they ever came up with uh, a plausible story. Um, interestingly, and in, in my closing argument, I gave you all that PowerPoint, but I don't remember, there were at least 10 times where they noted prior to the abnormal uh, nasal pharyngoscopy, uh, vocal cords damage, vocal cords damage. And then even when, doc, when Dr. Kim did the nasal pharyngoscopy, he said, oh, abnormal vocal cords. Suspect it's from the endotracheal tube that they right. intubated her with. So they had all that in the medical records. And the time we get to trial, we, they said, well, we didn't really mean torn vocal cords or damaged vocal cords. We, we were, that, that just seemed like something likely, but we're not saying that's really what happened. 
It's, it's, it's the same problem you see a lot with medical records. Right. Um, if it helps them, then by gosh, they want to stick to the written word, the written record. It's in the record. If it doesn't help, then all, all of a sudden, well, we don't rely on medical records. I mean, right. Right. That, that, we medicine. don't really need those. Right. You know, so. Right. Um, and so in that timeline, Robin, where, when, because it was a little hard for me to, I don't know the medicine. When does the, um, you sent us the video of the barium swallow. Yeah. So when, do, when does that fit into everything that's happening? They did a mod, the modified barium swallow, I think, um, the nasal pharyngoscopy was August 20th. Um, and I think they didn't do the barium swallow until after that nasal pharyngoscopy. Um, okay. Cause that, that was very cool to see. I mean, it's kind of, it's hard to watch because there's audio is. and you can hear her coughing and aspirating. And you can also hear the, um, the technicians or whoever the medical staff is in the room talking about her aspirating. Right. But it sounded like even after that, there was a delay in really doing anything to help her or, or even acknowledge this problem. Right. That, that was part of our case. And especially after the nasopharyngoscopy, which was totally abnormal, um, there was no plan. So, so they do a test. I even asked the expert, well, why, why bother doing the test? Oh, well, we have to have a diagnosis. Great. Get a diagnosis. Now, what are you going to do? Right. Who's asking the question of how are we going to help Jane get better and walk out of this hospital? Nobody bothered asking that except her son. Uh, and, and that's really very disconcerting uh, for medical, all these medical professionals. They yeah. brag about how many doctors had seen her. Well, no, there was no coach. Right. I'm, I'm, I use that analogy. Where's the coach or the quarterback calling the play? Who, we got all these medical professional, professionals. Who's making sure Jane's going to get better? What's the game plan, folks? Come on, coach. What's the game plan? They never had a game plan. So um, after that nasal pharyngoscopy, which interestingly, weirdly, was done at night by this third-year resident, and another third-year resident on anesthesiology service was in there watching him. He says he calls his attending. Well, the attending, Dr. Rajan, had been, when he gets the call to come do a nasal pharyngoscopy, he calls his resident to do it because Dr. Kent, Dr. Rajan, the attending ENT, is across the street at Children's Healthcare putting tubes in kids' ears. He never bothers to walk across the street and see the patient he's been asked to consult on. Right. Allows the third-year resident to do it. They say they had a, call, a telephone call about it, but there's no medical record to show that. None. And Dr. Rajan, the attending, never, as, as Steve said, signs off until after she dies. He never signs off on the co consultation until after she dies. But they swear they, they called each other. Well, this one, when talking to the jurors afterward, this was a big point for them. They really did not like this. And it came out in Dr. Rajan's testimony that he lives in Decatur, three miles away, maybe, from the hospital. That really bothered them, that he yeah. lives three miles away and never got in his car and drove to see her during this entire time. That really upset them. Uh, they let Dr. Kim, the resident, kind of off the hook because they thought it's really it's really the doctor who's supervising him that should have done something. Yeah. Um, but one of the kind of funny 
and I hate to use the word funny, but but uh, things that we kind of seized upon was Dr. Kim in his consultation that no one reads. It gets put in the medical records, but for no apparent purpose, simply says, oh, she's totally abnormal. She can't protect her airway, which is a life threatening event, by the way, when you can't protect your own airway. She she can't protect her own airway and she is definitely aspirating into her lungs. But if you need anything else from me, give me a call. <laughs> and so on cross-examination, I said, you know, that's like like what the kids say on texting. Hit me up. HM, right. Hashtag HMU if you need me, right? HMU? <laughs> and the jury was with me. Yeah, like, oh, I'm yeah. going to give you HMU. <laughs> yeah. So after that, now my entire family, you know how your families get into yeah. your cases. No oh, anything yeah, about yeah. it. They're HMU. always saying HMU, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I am impressed you know that because I, I until you just said that I had never heard of HMU. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Vine. Me up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's, yeah. this is why I watch TikTok. That's that's the only that's reason right. that I yes. like <laughs> sure. remotely know what's happening. Yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, I, that is, you know, uh, and I we should talk about this. <clears throat> And we could we we can hit it in whatever order you want, but it, but ultimately the jury uh, came back with a verdict where they found Dr. Rajan uh, was uh, negligent, and uh, and then as far as the anesthesiologist, the uh, anesthesia assistant, and the um, resident, they found they weren't negligent, or right. and um and so the, the verdict was based on Dr. Rajan, which you know I mean when you read I mean, this whole thing about how, you know, he's consulting on this patient that he never sees, never follows up on, especially when she has this life-threatening event and then signs off on a record 11 days after she dies a month later. I mean, that's just shocking. And, um, you know, so I can, I can completely understand their, where they were coming from there. But I guess I'm interested in hearing what, when you talk to the jury, what, what was their thought about the anesthesiologist and the uh and the anesthesia assistant what had happened there a couple of things um this jury was out for almost a week wow probably the hardest working jury i've ever seen uh i give them all kinds of credit they they hung in there and they had as you can imagine through two two weeks of trial and and deliberations personal things a juror had a father had a heart attack i mean we had to put off a lot to accommodate things going on in their personal lives. And they hung in there. Um, many jurors told me this was a totally compromised verdict, as I think most verdicts are. You know, most verdicts are compromised. They get in there. I even tell them in a jury, y'all, y'all, y'all know how to, to, to compromise and figure a way out of this. You'll, you'll do it. You know, <laughs> uh, compromised verdict. Probably seven or eight wanted to to do a negligence across the board and give much more money. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to, I, I think I asked between five and 10 million. They wanted it to be between five and 10 million. There were th- three or maybe four, I can't remember, but three at least who felt like they could not find negligence or, or really reluctantly wanted to hold Henry responsible and had just basically compromised their way out of it. But but the way they got from anesthesia to uh, ENTs, they said, well, even if they did tear the vocal cords, okay, let's say they did, then the ENTs in Emory had a month to figure this out and make her better. And they never did anything. They never treated that. So we're going to let the anesthesiology folks 
have a have a have a pass because the ENTs then had a problem, could have dealt with it, could have fixed it, and didn't do it. So they hung it all on on the ENTs. There was a treatment that my expert, my otolaryngology expert, talked about where they could have injected her vocal cords with a filler. And when you have bowed vocal cords or glottal insufficiency, the, the two vocal cords have a little hole in them. They, when you swallow, they're supposed to be like this with your two hands together. And when she would swallow because of what's called glottal insufficiency, they wouldn't go together. And that's when the liquid goes down into your lungs. But if you injected those vocal cords, they would plump up where they would stick together when she swallowed. And they would plump up and you could, could do that long enough that she could get her, her energy and her strength back and overcome it. Uh, and that treatment was never even offered, never even offered. Right. And I think you had that was one of your demonstratives was showing what the vocal cords look like after yeah. it gets that injection. Right. OK. Right. Yeah, because that was that was very helpful because, you know, when I was looking at that, I was like, uh, you know, um, it's very easy to understand, which I guess I didn't until, you know, reading about your case, how important your vocal cords are, not just for talking, but Critical. for protecting your lungs. Critical. And when you can't protect your own airway, that's a life threatening event, which we wouldn't know that as walking around people. But doctors are supposed to know that, you know, Marshall right. Fox didn't know that, um, but the doctors certainly did. And they attempted to blame Marshall for a lot of stuff, which I thought was very unfair. Um, but, you know, one example is one of the things they could do is, is pump up her nutrition. She was so small and couldn't eat. At some point, they had to put her on NPO, not, nothing by mouth. Uh, per os is what it's called, nothing by mouth. Um, so they needed to put a feeding tube in. One of the doctors, the, the, the thoracic surgeon who actually put the feeding tube in later also attempted to blame Marshall for not giving consent quickly enough. And this just comes out. I mean, they never brought this up before during discovery. This just comes out at trial. And so I start looking at that. I'm like, OK, let's uncross. Let's deal, deal with this. And I, I said, well, Marshall gave you consent on August 30. Uh, and yet the feeding tube's not put in for three days later. So so let's let's go through that. Why not? And it turns out that's a sat August 30 is a Saturday. He gave consent, yeah. calls Dr. Fernandez. Okay, put it in. Well, Dr. Fernandez says, Well, we don't operate on Saturdays. <laughs> oh, okay. Well then the next day's a Sunday. Why why don't you operate on why don't you put it in on Sunday? It's an emergency. They they had literally blamed. Uh, uh, Marshall, that his mom was dying because she couldn't get any nutrition. You're starving her to death, Marshall. So he gives us consent on a, on a Saturday. They don't do it because they don't operate on Saturday. I said, well, you could have done it on Sunday. No, we don't operate on Sunday. Well, surely you did it the very next day, Monday. No, because that was Labor Day, <sighs> holiday. Oh, and we goodness. don't, we can't bring our doctors in on holiday. And I said, so the next time you do it is Tuesday. Three days later, and yet you want to blame Marshall for, for causing her to, to die from starvation? That's yeah. what you're telling this jury? That's the kind of stuff that, that just overreaching, totally unnecessary. But if you're going to do it, I will exploit it. And the jury, the jury hates stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They hates stuff like that. No, especially because I mean she's in that situation and he's in that situation of having to make those decisions because of what they did. Right. I mean, 
that's the other thing that gets me in medical cases where you kind of look at this down the road mm-hmm. stuff that comes up or that the defenses that will sort of be thrown at you after, after the injury. And it's like, you know, look, these situations are, are tough to be in and you're only in that situation where someone's health is deteriorating and you're having to make those hard situations because of what, what happened to her, to her in the first place at Emory. Right. And as I talked about, there's an imbalance of power and imbalance of knowledge between doctors and a lay person. He doesn't know. He's relying on the doctors. And if they don't right. tell him, hey, if we don't put a feeding tube in your mom right now, she'll die, then he doesn't know. He's relying on them. But then when he gives the permission, they wait three more days. Right, right. Right. I mean, I think anybody who's been, I always, it's so, it's so dumb because I've only been hospitalized once in my life and it was for food poisoning. It it was not a big deal. We we, we talked about that before on the podcast. I always bring it up. (laughs) I always bring it up. It's a traumatic event, obviously. Right. Right. But one of the reasons I always bring it up and it is not to compare these situations to my situation, but it is the most powerless I've ever felt was, yeah. was when I was in the hospital and, and all things considered across the spectrum, I was in good health. I was able to advocate for myself and it's still probably the most confused I've ever been and the most powerless I've ever felt. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think until I was in that situation, I didn't get it. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think especially for people who are in worse health or trying to help their loved ones. It, it just comes back to that imbalance of power that some jurors get, but I think not, not every juror gets, you know, I do think a lot of your personal experience comes into it, or maybe that's just my excuse to talk about myself on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's a great point because I mean, it, it, you know, it, I think it's the, probably the main, it, it actually, we understand it as lawyers that when clients come in, they're relying on us to tell them the state of the law and what they can sure. do and what they can't do. It, and they, and they don't know cause they didn't study it. They don't work in it. Doc, it's the same way when you go to the doctor you know, she doesn't know how to, you know, uh, intubate herself or what she's supposed to do if they screw up during the intubation. Um, you know, so she's relying on her doctors. And I think there may be even magnified when you're talking about a physician and a patient, because right. in our society, we think physicians are probably the smartest people, uh, most, highly educated. I mean, you can't argue that they're probably the most highly educated people, but uh, there's so much deference we give to physicians in our society. Um, but it reminded me of a uh, one of my cross-examinations of the anesthesiology assistant, the AA, um, that really got him. I mean, you know, you, you can't count on many um, unforced errors, let's say, by the defense in a case like this, and, and certainly not by defense counsel, because they're they're brilliant. They're great. Um, but in talking about intubating with this double lumen tube, um, and the big one that you can see, I'm showing it to you as we take this, but it's very large and it's very rigid and thicker plastic compared to the single lumen tube. Um, and the double lumen tube actually has a wire in it right here that you intubate and then you pull the wire out, but the wire gives it even more rigidity to be able to stick it down your your throat, um, which, by the way, during the entire trial, I never pulled that wire out. Uh, I wanted them to, 
think that, you know, and I beat it against the, the right, jury right, yeah. box and how hard <laughs> this is. But um, when asking the AA about uh, the fact that this is for a regular sized man who weighs 200 pounds and he's six five, and this is more like a, this is a small person size, almost a pediatric tube. And, and she was uh, five feet tall, 98 pounds. I said, you know, wouldn't it just be common sense that you would use the smaller one on the smaller person? And and he goes, oh, we don't use our common sense. <laughs> we 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 know what we're we know we're to use the double lumen too. So I let that go, and then we come back in closing argument. Oh, first yeah. thing I tell him is, you know what? You don't have to be like Mister So and So. You get to use your common sense. And in fact, you don't leave your common sense in the jury room. You take, I mean, in the courtroom, you take it in the jury. It's common sense. And they're all like, yeah, don't tell me not to use common sense. Uh, Even if medically you don't use common sense, you use an algorithm or whatever they do. Don't say you don't use your common sense. People hate that. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal Technology Services, uh, give them a try. I want to go back one second because I'm, I'm impressed when, when the issue of whether or not uh, um, uh, Jane's son Marshall had given permission for the, the feeding tube, you know, that sort of hit you uh, by surprise, right? And, yes. and in the middle of your cross, you were able to locate the document. I mean, that's that yeah. is a, a lot harder, especially when you've got a lot of medical records to do. Uh, when you're sitting there up in front of jurors, in front of the judge, you know, and then somebody throws a curveball at you to be able to find a document. I mean, I, I just want to say I'm impressed that, you know, you're you had such a command of the medical records 
be able to point that out. Um, yeah, my, when you said that, my thought was, okay, that's when I start sweating even more profusely <laughs> right. and panicking. You do sweat. Now, you guys know when you've lived with the case five years, yeah. you, you know these medical records, yeah. especially as you're getting ready for trial. But one of the things I did was I, print out the cal- I printed out the calendar for that time period of 2014 because I used that as showing how many days she suffered. But I started looking at it as I'm hearing this and thinking, God, I hope that was on a Friday. I hope that was on a Friday. And I looked it up because I had the calendar there. I I used it. I was going to use it for damages. And there it was. I I didn't know for sure it was Labor Day, but that was kind of a gift also. Because I'm like, why did they wait till Tuesday? And then able to show it because I had that calendar. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I'll, I'll uh, just give a quick example from a, a case that my partner and I tried where we had studied the medical records and really knew them. And in closing argument and, and a mistake that the defense lawyer made in that case was we had put into evidence our copy of the medical records and the defense agreed to that. And they had our numbering on them. And the, the lawyer for the defense, uh, it, it was a necrotizing fasciitis case, the lawyer for the defense you know, basically went up and said, you know, this comes down to two documents. And he read off the numbers of the documents, He said, just look at these two pages. And he was reading off of the copy he had, not the one that was in evidence. And so I looked it up, you know, while he was saying, and I, I leaned over to Jeff and I, and I said, uh, you know, he just told him to look at the nutritional supplement. It really is. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, for me, I've, I think I've only been involved in two medical malpractice trials. And I really do think, especially for new lawyers, I mean, those cases can be intimidating and, and expensive and time consuming, Robin, as you pointed out, when, when you take them on. But I also think those trials, you know, yes, you're, you've gotten really familiar with the medicine, you've gotten familiar with the testimony, you've gotten familiar with the records, but it really is a lot. I mean, it is a there is a lot of paper for those who don't practice in that area at all. I mean, you know, you've got your medication administration that's one place and then your images that are other places. And so there's really a lot of work that goes into organizing them and making them usable when you're at trial. And then even after you do all that, you've still also, to the extent you want, you really need the jury to dig into it. You've also got to make it usable and accessible for them. And I think a lot of your, some of the demonstratives you sent us, Robin, really did a good job of, of sort of, of going right to the records rather than you just saying things about the records that, that I imagine the jury back in the room is like, okay, we we know this is one of the important documents. Well, you have to know that. I mean, that's your job as a trial lawyer. You have to know, you have to know it's page 434 of 10,000. And it, it was probably 10,000 pages on, on this chart. Um, there were, there was a cross-examination that I did that I have my paralegal Nikki come with me to trial and she does everything with me, does Vaudeer. She pulls up my documents. Um, you have to be able to quickly say, pull up 434. Um, but in one of my cross-examinations, um, I was able to pull up every time that they had said a vocal cord trauma, vocal cord trauma, vocal cord trauma, where they're trying to say it wasn't trauma. And page after page after page, then you, you can kind of write their position off. It's just, you know, it's hard, but it's, yeah. it is one of the things you, you just have to do. You have to, and you have to do it quickly. I yeah. think, I think 
you know, fumbling around with stuff. Uh, bad. Can't do that. You got to have it on the fingertips. Your, your tip of your tongue. You got to, yeah, you got to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, I mean, and it, you're right. I mean, it is so important, but it, it, it is just impressive, especially, it, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You were trying this case. You were the only lawyer trying this case. I was uh, on my side. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> other uh, side. Other side had uh, several lawyers, uh, including an appellate lawyer, a risk manager, several par- several paralegals, and it. And on my side, it's me, Nikki, and Marshall, my yeah. client, the three of us. So it's it's David versus Goliath in the Valley yeah. of Elah. No question about it. It can yeah. be it can be intimidating. Um, but being on the, the side of right also yes. helps you get past that intimidation. Um, um, I, I do want to talk about a couple of the themes that you used in your closing. Um, one, one of which I was just looking at is the um, the circling of the wagons by the, the, the defense. And you have this demonstrative where you're, you're showing, uh, I think, all of the experts for the the defense and then how close they are to the do- the treating doctors that were at Emory and how they had worked on stuff together how one yeah. I think one of them had interviewed the resident uh, in another time yes and uh, I mean it's so true but some of the some of the information that you had found out about them I'm wondering how did you find out uh, you know like for instance that that uh, uh, the resident had been interviewed by this uh, by uh, one of their experts. Uh, was it just something that came up in, in deposition? Can't remember. It may have been that I, um, you know, you do a lot of, you do a lot of research. Yes. Uh, I, I think I knew Dr. Kim had left Emory. He didn't stay as an attending, finished his residency there. And so then he's looking for a full-time position. And I think I researched where he interviewed. And found that out that he had interviewed at um, San Diego US, USC or U, UC San Diego, where Dr. Rosen was. Um, I was told, and and so in that field, otolaryngology, a subspecialty of ENT, um, very small field, and that's why they kind of well, we all know each other because we all go to the same conferences. It's very right. small, you know. Not very many doctors do otolaryngology. That's the otolaryngology is the top primo specialty of ENT. So that's how they claim they all knew each other. But you start doing the research. Let's say one of their experts, Dr. Rosen, who had interviewed Dr. Kim for a job, I think offered him the job. Um, Dr. Rosen had written hundreds of articles, hundreds. I read every one, read every one. And you know how they write in a medical article, it'll say who they co-authored it with, or if it was uh, concurrent research in another facility. And I would see Dr. So-and-so from Emory. Um, one of the doctors was the one who told the defense attorney who to hire. And you just start reading all this. So, you know, with a, an expert in, a, in otolaryngology, I know there's no way I'm ever going to learn more otolaryngology right, than that right. guy. I'm not going to do it. Um, but I can point out why there might be biases and why you shouldn't believe everything that comes out of his mouth. Don't just take it for granted. And so that's what I showed with that. They all knew each other. They'd written articles together. They'd gone to conferences. Dr. Postma had played golf with him, uh, with the other expert. I pointed that out. Um, it, it, it was very incestuous. And <laughs> the defense attorney in his closing said, his response was, well, I'm sorry they all know each other. I'm not going to get an expert from Hey Hira. 
<laughs> I don't think the jury liked that either. Right, exactly. I don't think they like that. But, um, you, you know, you've got to read every article. You've got to think about every possible thing. And, it, uh, you know, it's just what you do. It's, yeah. Well, it, you know, and then it's it, unturned. And, and then uh, some of the other themes that you came up with and worked them into your closing uh, nicely was the this lack of game plan that you you yeah. already talked about. And, and you know, and I was going to say when you were mentioning that, uh, I, when you talk to doctors off the record, a lot of them will agree uh, the way medicine is done today, that uh, everything's, you know, uh, put in its little, you know, uh, cubicles or, you know, and they're, they're not talking to each other. Uh, and there is nobody really leading the ship anymore. Uh, and, um, and, and it's a, it, it's a big problem. And I think that is why, you know, and I, and I think jurors have experienced that when they go to hospitals. And so it's something easy for them to understand on what's wrong with the medical system right now and the way that it's, it's run. But so it's absolutely true. And then, and then you had the theory of, um, of, of being a hero that you're, you, you don't wake up, know you're going to be a hero, but, uh, you know, they, they got to be jurors in this case where they can, uh, give justice to, um, to Jane. I, I, I just, I like the way you work those, um, those, uh, themes into your closing. Yeah. I talk about no one on when they wake up in the morning, no one thinks they're going to be the hero that pulls somebody out of a burning car on the side of the road. But that day is for you. That's your day today. Yeah, uh, you're going to pull the burning the person out of the burning car today, deliver justice. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the power of a jury. We all do that. You've got to you've got to motivate them. You've got to give them the power to do justice. And I was really hampered, actually, in my closing. I didn't get to say a lot of the stuff I normally say. Uh, there were objections and the judge actually went with the objections. Um, so I didn't you know, I didn't get to talk about the conscience of DeKalb County. Uh, I didn't I didn't get to do all my juicy stuff I usually do. Um, so I was really hampered. But I do talk about being being the hero. Um, they got to feel good about what they're getting ready to go do. It's hard. Right. Um, so you motivate them to do that. Um, the other thing, too, about, about old and frail, uh, that was one of their big defenses. And I, I played in closing. I, I replayed our voicemails. And I replayed the, the dying goodbye videos on her deathbed. Um, and, and you give that kind of enough time. You don't really need to say a lot. You just say before and after, before, yeah. after, and let that sink in. Um, one of their experts was, the, the, I believe, the same age as Jane, um, as was defense counsel. Right. And he got on the stand, the 74-year-old expert said, you know, we all aspirate. Everybody aspirates. I'm aspirating right now. I'm like, oh, are you really? Then why aren't you having pneumonia right now and can't talk to this jury? Can't be aspirating too bad, can you? Um, but then that also sets up, he's 74 and he's coming from Augusta, from, from the medical center to come and testify and make, what do you make, $4,000 for a half a day? And they want to say Jane's too old for you to give money for because she was 74 and old and frail. You know, so they got to watch that. Um, and I can turn that on them and say, he, he's not old and frail. He's 74. Don't think just because you're 74 means you're old and frail uh, yeah. or aspirating to the point that you have pneumonia. That that was a little I think that was a little ridiculous, actually. But um, Right. Well, and I mean, I. You, I'm sure it's on it's on Steve's list to talk about the 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 damages and and 
the ways that you were able to explain to the jury to think about that. But before we even go there, uh, one of the things that I thought was really moving about the case and obviously the goodbye videos was that, you know, 74 years old is is really not that old once you have a concept for that. I mean, if you'd asked me when I was 14, I would have been like, yeah, right. that's ancient. But, well, you, you know, you probably, you probably thought 40 was old. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's really not. But even if it was there, it's it's just so tragic that then, you know, the last months of her or mm-hmm. days of her life and she can't even really communicate. Yeah. Which when 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 it might feel more important than ever. Very, that's absolutely true. This is how she suffered, or, you know, um, arguably could have just done that at home and been more comfortable. Um, for example, when she was past the point of no return, as I called it, where she was, you know, medical term, which I would never use, would be unsalvageable. They actually use that term to describe human beings. Mm. Um, that's how I think callous medicine can be. But um, past the point of being able to be helped, uh, her throat was killing her. Um, she begged for ice cream, begged, and they wouldn't give it to her, even though they knew she was going to die anyway. And my right. expert pointed that out. She had her 75th birthday in the hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, celebrated it by begging for ice cream and they wouldn't give it to her. And then the other re- really strange thing is that Emory Hospital has a hospice in the hospital, yeah. uh, which makes it a little too convenient, uh, yeah. really. I-, I thought that was really bizarre. I'd never seen that before. They just ship them up to hospice. Um, that's how she got to spend her last days. Um, it, was, it was sad. I mean, it was sad. Yeah. Everybody was crying. Every- everyone was crying. Yeah, I mean, Yvonne was saying, and you know, and obviously you had that to talk about as far as her uh, her conscious pain and suffering. But uh, yeah. talk about how you presented uh, damages to the jury in order to uh, get them to understand the value of life and things like that. Yeah, and just to touch on before Robin starts, because I know we have listeners who practice in in other states and different areas, but I think this is pretty common. But one of the ways that Georgia law actually allows the jury to be instructed is to take into account life expectancy, you know, based on the mortality tables and other things like this, so that that at least per the instructions, the age of a plaintiff does come into play. And so you've got to handle that. Yeah, it does. And her under our mortality table, I see that her life expectancy was 10.82 years. When you have a number like that, you have to consider, do I bring that up? Do I put that into evidence or do I just let let that go? Um I typically err on the side of putting it into evidence to give me a base, give me an anchor to argue something. I think I argued that they should give a million dollars for every year of life uh, left. Argue that that's a mortality table based on averages. So she had a 50% chance of living longer than that. I had her sister, older sister, who was 82, come in from Alabama and testify she gets up there, walks right up to the witness stand, doesn't need a walker or anything, walks right up there and testifies about all growing up and things they did together and what Jane was like. And then in closing said, you saw what Jane would look like at age 82. You had her sister. That's what she should be doing right now, enjoying life, just like her sister. You know she would live past that. Um, so uh, did that. I did, um, I did do a per diem because it gives – a jury right. enough high numbers to, to think about. One of the things I typically do um, 
is kind of fun. Uh, you take the defense experts hourly rate or right. daily rate, you know, you put that in the per diem. And I think I got something like $31 million because that's how he values his time. That's right. what he, what he thinks his life time that he spends his life is worth. He, she's just worth every penny. Dr. So-and-so is, uh, you make that argument. Um, and then you say, but I would never ask you for a ridiculous number like he charges. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. Something like that. I, I did the use, you know, I, did, I compared it to things in society that how we value, like um, the, the grain. I, you can pick any painting that's been yeah. sold on auction, but I picked Claude Monet's grain stacks for 110 million. Um, you know, this, this F twenty two Raptor one hundred and fifty two million. And by the way, did you know a, a fighter jet that's worth one hundred and fifty two million dollars has an ejection seat for the pilot? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because they value the pilot's life right. more wow. than more than that one hundred and fifty two million dollar jet. That's right. Yeah, that tells you life is more valuable. Um, so you just find things you can argue. I found this uh, dose of medicine that. Um, cure spinal muscular dysphrates, $2 million a dose for one dose. Um, and then, I, you know, you, you try to be, re- I just try to be reasonable. I always mm-hmm. use reasonable a lot. And I did that graph, like, because people like bell curves, they get it, like in the middle's the good place to be. And so you right. draw a graph to mix the number you want, kind of be in the top of your bell curve. Um, those, you know, those are kind of typical things, but I was so hampered in what I typically say. I ended up just kind of saying, um, because this is this is really my my faith, um, my Christian faith is that every person, no matter what, is of sacred worth. And when I used of sacred worth, jurors were nodding with me. They're like, mm-hmm. absolutely, everybody's of sacred worth. You know, you put a number on sacred. Um so that's kind of how I closed my number. You know, y'all do the right thing, be reasonable, but remember, everyone's of sacred worth. Yeah. And and they agreed. Um, the other thing I did because Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, was in the news a lot during that time. She's eighty six, and she still sits on the United States Supreme Court. Um, and I showed them her picture and said, and so this was kind of my closing argument. My really last thing is um, Jane. Jane was meticulous. She kept journals dating back before Marshall was born. Every day she journaled, every day. And she would write so small, you could barely read them. But we had, we had 40 years of journals that we turned over to the defense, 40 years of them at least. Wow. Um, and she wrote and wrote, wrote. And we admitted several years worth just so the jury could see how her cognition was great. She journaled all the way to the day she went into Emory Hospital. Um, and so my theme there was they wrote her off. Emory right. wrote her off. Um, and I took Jane's last journal that had a bunch of empty pages in it. And I showed him the journal. I said, you don't write her off. You write the rest of Jane's story. You take this journal and finish her journal for her. She's not here. She can't do it. You write her story. Wow. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> You you got to figure out what what the case is giving you, and and make that into your story, um, and incorporate it. So did uh, you read? Do you read every page of those journals? No, I did not. <laughs> I read during time. I read times that I knew were critical, 
Yeah. There's right. no way. I well, I was going to say, I if you managed to find glass. <laughs> I was right. going to say, if you managed to read all those expert articles and do all that digging on the experts and read all those journals, you've got some superpowers. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, didn't read exactly. the journals. I didn't read every expert <laughs> article because um, you got to use those articles they wrote. You know, you, you're looking for that one phrase That's right. where they said the wrong thing in this case. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can find them because they usually do. And then they have to nitpick like, well, I didn't really mean that. I'm like, you wrote it. Yeah. In a, peer, in a peer review journal. No, no one forced you to say that. You right. wrote, those are your words. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. No, it's gold when you can find that stuff. Well, um, Robin, this has just been fantastic. I, I, I just want to make sure, is there anything else that we haven't told the uh, listeners about, um, about Fox versus Emory Clinic that you want to make sure they, they've heard? Um, uh, what, a couple of things. Um, during jury selection, um, we had uh, a juror who did not speak English, and she had to have a uh, Amharic translator, which is from Ethiopia. Um, and I want to mention this to shut to tell you how my practice has been. It, this went without a hitch. We had an Amharic translator sit next to this uh, DeKalb County citizen who wow. didn't speak English. And there was no, no talk about, well, we're not in, let's just let her go. No, we're going to let her go through voir dire. Uh, ultimately, she did not get on the jury, but there, there would have been accommodations made for her with a translator had she gotten on, which I, I applaud our judge and the DeKalb County, his staff. I mean, they were on top of that, like just fantastic. But guys, it made me think about um, some pro bono work I did when I first started practicing law. I practiced for 32 years. But when I first started, I worked for a, um, a Georgia commission on hearing impaired, which I don't even know if exists anymore. But at the time, I represented hearing impaired people pro bono. And one of the cases I had was a, a hearing impaired man. Actually, I think he was totally deaf, communicated only, only through ASL, American Sign Language. And he had gotten a juror summons and he, he uh, got someone to call for to cap. It was DeKalb County actually, and, and call about it. And they said, "Oh, you just don't have to come. You know, you're you're deaf." Well, he wanted to. He, as a citizen, wanted to, to participate in what he thought was one of the most important uh, things of our our being a citizen, our duty. He wanted to, and so my pro bono work was to go to a the presiding judge at that time in DeKalb County and explain it and get a court order making DeKalb County hire an ASL translator for him to go through Wadir, which awesome. they'd never done before. So I'm, I'm, I was just flashback from having to go get a court order to get a translator versus we've got an inherent translator right here, ready to go, like nothing happened. That, that was, a, was a personal moment, but a, a really uh, proud moment to see in our judiciary we we got it. This is nothing now. This is the, yeah. this is how everybody can participate in our civil justice system. I I just thought that was really really cool. Um, another thing, this case lasted so long five years, um, and two weeks of trial and, and jury deliberation. I I actually had two hip replacements during the life of this case. Oh wow! And so first one the right side early on, maybe two years into the case. The, the, my left one, I had scheduled for the Monday after trial. 
and uh, jury's still out. And so I had to call a friend, another trial lawyer in DeKalb County to, hey, if this happens, I don't want to miss my hip replacement. Would you come and receive the verdict? And he said, sure, I'll be happy to. (laughs) Um, But they came in on a Thursday night. The verdict came in on Thursday night. I took Friday off and then I had my second hip replacement on Monday. So that just shows you uh, how long a med mal case is. And I think the defense yeah. attorney, one of the associates, <clears throat> had two children during the life of the case. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's really incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that, that during that whole time, they never offered you anything on that case. No, no, right. no, not, no. That's, yeah. that's, that's the way it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then just lastly, if, if y'all will permit me, um, talking about pro bono work, I, I just want to encourage your listeners who are lawyers to do something. We're going through a very rough period where we see daily, I think, daily injustices yeah. uh, in our world. We see them here in, in Georgia, certainly. We've just had this horrible shooting up in uh, Wisconsin. Um, lawyers, I, I used to think lawyers could just do do your work at your church or your synagogue or, or temple, whatever, you know, volunteer that way. And I still, I still promote that, obviously. But I heard Emmett Bondurant tell a crowd of, of lawyers probably 25 years ago that lawyers have a special ability because you have a license to practice law, which gives you the ability to subpoena witnesses and documents that no one else has. You can do open records act requests that no one else knows how to do. You have a special ability because of your um, unbelievable license to practice law. Um, And I believe that now that as lawyers, we need to use our license to practice law to do do justice, to right wrongs. So when we see something that we know is wrong, stand up, do something, use your law license to do good. Um, Not just the other things in your community. I'm asking you to do those too. Yeah. Uh, You know, work for curing cancer and and feeding the homeless and all the other good things that lawyers do. But I'm also asking our our listeners to get involved, use your law license, do good, stand up, speak up. Absolutely. And that's such a, I mean, especially at this moment in time where there is so much going on and, and there is so much help out there needed. And, uh, and, and like you said, Robin, just a lot of injustice out there that needs to be, uh, needs to be righted. Well, and it comes back to what you were saying earlier too, Steve, about how we talk a lot about in this show about the trust relationship between people and their doctors. But, you know, as you pointed out, the legal system is similar. People come to us not sure how to navigate it and putting their trust in us. And and with that power, we have a responsibility to to try to do good with it. So thank you, Robin. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Well, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Robin Fraser-Clark uh, of Robin Fraser-Clark PC. She's a, a tremendous trial lawyer in the Atlanta area. Uh, you can look her up at uh, gatriallawyers.net and you can hear her on See You in Court, uh, the podcast from the uh, Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, uh, which is uh, co-hosted by Robin along with Lester Tate. So uh, look it up and, uh, and listen to See You in Court. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. I I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com.
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast dot com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast dot com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>